Good evening, everyone. I'm Larry Hurtado, professor of New Testament and head of the School of Divinity, and I'm a member of the uh, Gifford Lectures Committee. It's my honor and uh, privilege to introduce this final lecture in this year's Gifford series by Professor Michael Gazanaga from University of California at Santa Barbara. The series this year on free, the science of mind constraining matter, and this evening's lecture, as you see before you here, is uh, We Are the Law. Um, I want you to join me in welcoming Professor Gazanaga to the lectern. Thank you, and thank you, Hardy Souls, for uh, to the, the last lecture. Uh, there is a reception afterwards, so I know your motivation. Uh, <clears throat> this phrase, we are the law, um, was suggested to me by a philosopher, Gary Watson, pointing out the simple fact that uh, as we come to think of ourselves, we shape the rules by which we decide to live by. And so if we begin to think of ourselves differently than we had 50, 100, 200 years ago, obviously we're gonna construct the social framework around us differently. And that comes down to the fact we are the law. And the reason that's important in my context is that as I try to, to look into this, the issues of neuroscience and how brain enables mind, uh, are we becoming uh, uh, of a different belief about the nature of man about what we are and what, about how we should interact. And in doing so, is our legal structure uh, going to change? So uh, again, my quick review from uh, the past lecture, The Mind Constrains the Brain, Understanding How Social Process Constrains Individual Minds. Tonight, <clears throat> the idea is to talk about cultural impact on law and our views of responsibility and justice that emerge out of neuroscience view of the human condition. Is retribution necessary or only accountability? And finally, is, is punishment justified? These are the issues that uh, I can tell you right now are not in any way answered, but they're uh, brought to the fore by uh, research on the brain and what it tells us about who we are. So uh, first of all, the cultural effects on cognitive uh, processes are real. Culture plays a significant role in shaping cognitive processes, and I'm going to show you an example of that. And so consequently, we should consider what's called a niche construction dynamics, which is attempting to characterize the system formed by the human brain, mind, and cultural interactions, how we come into this cognitive niche and how we change our environment and how that influences us. So first of all, just an example of uh, how a different cultural experience can actually change not only cognitive processes, but also the underlying physiology. Uh, this simple picture here of a fish tank uh, is shown to uh, people from uh, uh, East Asia. This is work done by the very talented psychologist uh, Richard Nisbet. Uh, and Americans, when they're shown this uh, fish tank, uh, notice the fish, <laughs> the big fish. If you show the same picture to Asian, Asian viewers attend to the entire scene. They, they look at it all of it the scene and its relative relationships. And so uh, you can detect this by their descriptions of the scene. If when you ask them after you flash it, what did you see? You can detect it in various memory tests. Uh, in short, uh, Americans, when they look at something, 
uh, view uh, the, the, the scene completely different uh, and the, from Asians, and of course this is a, a cultural effect. But can it impact in any way uh, the brain? So the notion that, that this has been interpreted is, how it's been interpreted is individualism, individualism of America stands in stark contrast to sense of interdependence uh, in East, East Asian countries. And so the question is, okay, can you pick that up uh, in a brain analysis? And Hayden Gabrielli recently did exactly that and did uh, variations of uh, that test that, that searched for independence and, uh, and, uh, and independence and interdependence. And they find out that when uh, Americans are uh, doing the interdependent, trying to see how something is to be understood in relative terms, their brain is working really hard. But when they're looking at it for just picking out the independent view, it's hardly working at all, and just the opposite for the Asian uh, culture. So it's powerful to see that uh, it has an impact and it can actually be read not only in the behavior and cognitive stance of somebody, but also in the underlying physiology. So as I said, this gives rise to this idea of uh, strengthening the importance of this idea of niche construction. In the standard Darwinian model, you have uh, elements uh, uh, being influenced by the environment and the, the normal natural selection processes we all know about occur as we adapt to the, the, strongest, uh, the strongest entities uh, survive a particular environment. But when you get into what's called niche construction, where the element, namely us, the human, can actually change the environment, then you start getting this interaction between the ability of the organism to change the environment and that feeding back and selecting the people that, in fact, are changing the environment. So, uh, so th th this comes particularly important, these ideas, uh, it, when you begin to think about how legal structures, about how our moral rules uh, might uh, um, uh, impact. So what we're saying is that there, a society develops an aggregate of moral lose, uh, rules, that, uh, the, that there's a societal uh, robustness constraint, if you will, and those social pressures actually affect the underlying uh, brain. And so you see how culture impacts development and evolution of neurocircuitry. You can see how this thing over time begins to shape actually uh, who we are. So these moral systems and understanding them uh, become real and they become important, very important to understand. So we're gonna apply that general principle, the general concept to the question before the house, which is we think about justice and punishment. And I'm going to show you a, 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 an event in American history that will get us to the essential problem. This version tracks the limousine and maintains President Kennedy and Governor Connolly at center frame. This version is only in <coughs> slow motion. I won't show the rest, it's too upsetting for, uh, just out of curiosity, how many people in the room remember that? Wow, amazing. Uh, <clears throat> well, um, Americans and the world were reacted to horror with that and uh, all kinds of reactions and uh, 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 it wasn't long before Americans took care of that problem. Uh, it was at the next day that Jack Ruby uh, uh, fulfilled the retributive moment 
and uh, carried out uh, the assassination of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, so in that case, the question becomes, uh, who do we blame, the person or the brain? Who, who do we blame in a crime? If we've come all this way through these lectures and been talking about all this determinism, uh, do we come to think of the fact that maybe, uh, you know, we can be, uh, we want to hold the person accountable, but we, we want to forgive him because of the, this deterministic dimension. And uh, then, but as everybody knows, the law is very complicated and there's other cases, not, not sure, uh, intentional murder, as in, in the Kennedy case, but uh, this case is uh, is of interest uh, from Australia, where a man goes into a uh, liquor store or market, I forget what it was, to hold it up, and he has a loaded gun, and uh, he asks the guy for the uh, money, and the guy gives it to him, no problem there, and then uh, sort of as he's on the way out or something, he trips, and the gun uh, accidentally goes off and kills the guy, and so uh, his defense was that uh, it was a reflex action, it wasn't intentional, no intent to wound, uh, shouldn't he be uh, 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 not charged with murder, it's simply manslaughter. And so these issues are, are everywhere, and they're everywhere in every court in the America, and in obviously the UK with common law. And it's interesting to think that the court system itself, uh, the trial, the jury, where we think these things are battled out, it's certainly true, but on the other hand, very few of all criminal cases, as you know, actually go to trial. They're all plea bargained out and settled out of court. Uh, but what happens is that if you start to think now of what does go on in the courtroom, this laboratory of judicial thinking, what does go on there, this is a place where neuroscience has an enormous amount to, to uh, say. Uh, everything from uh, the question of diminished responsibility in a defendant, everything from whether a judge in some way, and I'm gonna show you cases where uh, a judge might be biased by the very nature of the proceedings going on and though he's unconscious of the fact he's being biased, uh, the reliability of witness testimony, bias in the jury, and the representation of the facts by the prosecutor, all these things, lie detection, everything, all these things now have a neuroscience dimension and they're being, they're being suggested that neuroscience is going to come in and impact uh, how all these processes uh, go forward. And so uh, with that in mind, to some extent, Robert Sapolsky, professor of psychiatry at uh, Stanford University, uh, proposed or made this statement that uh, uh, he said, it's boggling that the legal system's gold standard for an insanity defense, McNaughton, right here in Scotland, is based on 166-year-old science. Our growing knowledge about the brain makes notions of volition, culpability, and ultimately the very premise of a criminal justice system deeply suspect. Well, that's, a, that's an extremely strong uh, uh, statement, but uh, what he's actually saying is that uh, given this feeling of determinism, given this feeling that we're beginning to understand mental states, given we can actually, as I'll show you, track down which parts of the brain are involved in volitional activity, and given they may be impaired, if we, as we grow in our knowledge of that and become very specific about it, uh, aren't we going to view how we view a defendant much differently? So uh, uh, that is the large picture of a project that uh, uh, I'm involved in in neuroscience and the law. Uh, there are people, however, who uh, make sobering observations about the uh, uh, chutzpah of uh, neuroscientists. Uh, Alvin Noe, a very bright uh, young philosopher at Berkeley, 
uh, points out, he says, I mentioned before that it is over-optimistic to think of the new neuroscience of consciousness as in its infancy. Developmentally, it would be more apt to characterize it like a teenager. Like teenagers, neuroscience is in the grip of technology. It has a grandiose sense of its own abilities and is entirely lacking a sense of history of where, what, for it seems so new and exciting. So uh, uh, he needs to calm down a little bit. We're, uh, we're, we're not completely that, that uninformed. So what's at stake here? Determinism and the law. So what's at stake? Here, here's what's at stake. Does modern neuroscience deepen our ideas about determinism, and with more determinism, is there less reason for retribution and punishment? That's the $64 question. And, and we, if to put it differently, with determinism, there is no blame, and with no blame, there should be no retribution and punishment, is the idea that's around, that's about, that people are worried about and puzzled about. And how do we, how do we go after that? Well, and it's important, as I said from the beginning, because if we change our minds about these things as a culture, as a, as a society, we're going to change how we deal with this whole unfortunate aspect of human behavior of crime and, and punishment. So we go back to our common roots and the common law system and just think when uh, a lot of uh, traditions were developed, there wasn't uh, much science around to consider. And if you move, it up, move up to 1950, there's a slow introduction of science, but uh, it's interesting to consider uh, uh, the 1950 jury, what they called science, psychoanalytic theory. So if uh, they would bring in the expert, the professional, and coming into the courtroom to testify one way or the other was in fact uh, a psychiatrist talking about the analysis of someone's behavior from a psychoanalytic point of view. Well, we've come a long way, and uh, in 2009, uh, we're asking ourselves the question that, well, now that we know all these brain mechanisms, correlates of cognitive states and mental stance and what have you, uh, is it too much? Are, are scans, in fact, brain scans, when they're brought into the courtroom and they're tried, brought in, they are brought in and, and they try to be brought in more frequently, the question uh, that you want to know is, are, are those scans more probative or are they actually prejudicial? Is there something about our culture that actually believes more about the science of these scans than the scientists uh, who produce it. And uh, uh, it's been called that the neuroscience of determinism is sort of oozed into the public consciousness. So whether uh, we can go through vast intellectual debates about where we stand on this matter of determinism, but in fact, uh, everybody kind of thinks it's a scientific world and a scientist walks in and shows the scan and shows a hole in the head and says, you know, that's the reason why Jones should, is, uh, should be considered uh, not guilty of this and so forth. And, uh, and so the question is, uh, is, uh, is there too much science now and, and not used properly? Getting to the bottom of that and establishing those facts is hugely important. Uh, uh, another one of these studies that shows uh, how we think of ourselves and how that impacts uh, was this recently carried out uh, again by Sheriff uh, Josh Green and uh, my colleague Jonathan Schooler, uh, where uh, again, um, they're playing, again, the students are about to play a game where they are going to administer greater or lesser punishment to somebody. And they, um, they are first primed, as it were, by reading a book that is a, a, a very deterministic in nature or not. 
And uh, for those who read the book about determinism, they administer less punishment than those that don't. So how we come to believe about this thing, uh, about these issues, about the nature of ourselves is going to, I think, influence uh, who we are. So the first issue then on this neuroscience and law question is we're going to look at determinism and exculpability. And we, of course, looked at, uh, in lecture four, we looked at the march towards determinism as it comes from neuroscience, and we don't have to go through that again. Uh, and you take that into uh, the, the, legal phrase, the legal framework, uh, here's the situation. Basically, law looks at the brain in this simple pattern. There's a practical reasoner that is acting, working freely in a normal brain, producing action and behavior. That's, that's the practical reasoner model of, uh, of anybody, uh, of, of humans. And then, uh, so personal responsibility is a product of a normally functioning brain, is, is sort of the setup for uh, how, how these matters are considered now. And so something occurs to the brain, a lesion, uh, uh, an injury, a stroke, uh, or uh, a neurotransmitter disorder, wh whatever it is, that makes the brain not uh, function uh, normally. And there's many, many examples of this. Uh, uh, a classic case in the United States uh, is the case of uh, Simon Perella, who in 1982, uh, uh, a judge sentenced uh, uh, to death for what's called first degree, first, well, what's called, what is first degree murder. And uh, 21 years later, after fighting it through the courts and everything, uh, he was picked up by a, a set of lawyers who didn't believe uh, the charge. I thought there, should, there were other circumstances. A brain scan was uh, the evidence that essentially uh, uh, was offered as to why he should be excused from this crime. And in fact, ultimately, uh, he was. So it was a, a evidence that a brain scan can have a powerful, powerful effect on the outcome of justice. And of course, in the famous Reagan uh, situation, I just found this video very, very interesting. I'll just see how many of you remember this. 25 years, it remains a moment seared in history. The attempted assassination of President Reagan in March 1981. This rare, unedited video of the shooting captures the... So, uh, you would think the Americans have a problem with this. Uh, given the two samples I've given you, but uh, that's just uh, the history. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, John Hinckley, who, who was obviously the, uh, the murderer, or, or the, the attempted assassin there, in fact had dilated ventricles, and in fact uh, a case was made by a Harvard psychiatrist that, that uh, he was a, a demonstrably schizophrenic based on this physical evidence. It, it didn't get into the actual decisions, so quite, quite deep into the... Uh, into the process. But uh, again, it was an evidence that you can uh, have a diminished brain and, and, uh, and use it as a, as a reason for exculpability. So the problem with that story, the simple brain disruption story, the brain injury story, the neurotransmitter story, uh, can be seen any a number of ways. In, schizophren in schizophrenia, of course, there are abnormal neurotransmitters. And, and there's a higher incidence of arrest, uh, usually drug-related among schizophrenics. But there's no higher incidence of violent behavior in schizophrenics uh, who are maintained on, uh, on their medication, and there's a, a uh, slight increase of, uh, of violent behavior on ones who are not, but it's a very low number. And so uh, here, here's the situation where just because uh, you're gonna use the defense of, neuro, of uh, schizophrenia 
because it helps you in one case, it, it also improperly liberates you from another case. And it, it isn't the case that uh, if you have schizophrenia that you all of a sudden your base rate of violent behavior goes up and you're, more like, you're vastly more likely to commit a crime. And the same is true, so, so the brain has no area of network for responsibility is, is what you get out of that. <clears throat> and another classic uh, sort of thing are the left frontal lobe lesions. Uh, this is the famous Phineas Gage uh, lesion that uh, made him violent uh, or increased his violence. And there's no question that people with uh, left frontal lobe lesions uh, can become uh, clinically odd. Their family and spouse know it, the patient can note it, yet if you look at the increase of their incidence of violent behavior, it goes from the normal base rate of about 3% in our culture up to 11%. Nothing's a switch. Nothing just, if you make a lesion in the brain, you just switch on violence. So you can't, uh, you can't just take these cases and say, oh, because it occurs in one case, you can't generalize uh, it out to another. If it was concluded that people with left frontal lobe lesions uh, were going to make, be made exculpable for their behavior. You can imagine people with left frontal lobe lesions saying, you know, I have a built-in excuse to carry out a few uh, revenges uh, <laughs> that I want to do, and, uh, and I, I will get off scot-free. So it's, it, it, you got to be very careful. It, it can flip on you, and it can be used in, a, in an inappropriate way. So, uh, so the question here, the, the brain really has uh, no area or network of responsibility. And as we've said before, uh, uh, the, the area of responsibility, the, the, the way to think about responsibility is at the culture and the interactions between people, not, not in the brain. But uh, brain images are very prevalent. They're in the courtroom and they have to be dealt with. And so, uh, and why? Well, through rethinking uh, fMRI is what we're going to do, but first of all, it's claimed functional brain imaging is the basis of the growing tendency to think of the brain in deterministic terms. There's no question about that. It seems inevitable that the findings of functional brain imaging examinations will be introduced as evidence in legal proceedings. There's absolutely no question about that. However, the question is closer inspection of the technique really casts doubt on these interpretations. Uh, and expectation. I just want to mention these in passing because they're, they're, it's very important to understand this. And let's call it for uh, want, uh, well, it's the problem of individual uh, variation. That everybody's brain in this room probably uh, is, well, is slightly different and it reliably solves the problems in different ways. And one can uh, see this uh, fact. I mean, we, there's, a, there's a rich history of individual variations and people have known about this in psychology for years, of course. But in the, in the brain imaging environment, it sort of disappeared for a while because in order to start brain imaging, uh, one had to get the signal to noise ratio in a particular study up. So what they would do is they would study 20 people in the scanner, then they'd get a way of morphing their brain into one space and then they would add together all the variables, uh, all the numbers into that morphed averaged brain in order to get their signal to noise ratio high enough to say that they got a particular response. And this was done by the great uh, French radiologist Jean Tellerac. And, uh, and this, uh, uh, actually the brain he picked was an 80 year old French woman. And so, so much of early brain research was uh, built around that. Uh, so uh, the problem is though, that uh, 
if, if most of the brain imaging work is coming from groups, how do you get to the individual? How do you get to Jones, who's the defendant, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the courtroom, if you're talking about all your science in terms of groups? It's a huge problem. And uh, 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 that, uh, I don't need that. So let me, let me show you the exact example. So here's how it works. Here would be an average uh, result. So this is a, 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 a brain response to a recognition memory test. And, and this is the, uh, a group of, I think, 16 subjects all together uh, in uh, being averaged together to give you that response. So people might say, if they weren't uh, careful, they would say, well, the left uh, frontal areas are heavily involved in this particular kind of memory task. Okay, you know, but wait a minute. Let's look at all of the people in that experiment. And, well, there's a subject. He doesn't have that same area. Well, let's look at them all. Uh, of the, uh, these are the first nine subjects. And uh, you see the areas where there is activity in the summed average, but all these other patients, uh, I mean, all these other, so these aren't patients, all these other subjects uh, simply uh, do not have activation in that area. So how could you take a claim of a particular person and compare it to this average and think you have a story to unwind in terms of the underlying neuro, uh, neuroscience of a particular mental state. And what's interesting is that if you bring each of these subjects back six months later, so I bring Jones back six months later, the pattern of responses that he has on a particular task are very closely related. So he or she are consistent in how they respond to a particular challenge, uh, but the, the variation between the people remains uh, high. So bringing neuroscience into the courtroom has that danger. You're, how are you going to actually take group data, which so much of these studies uh, really reflect, how are you going to actually apply it to a particular individual? And that's only one problem. We've been talking uh, over the last few weeks, <laughs> it just seems like that, uh, uh, about uh, variations in, in white matter, the connection, the fibers that connect these areas of ac activity. And uh, you must understand the human is, uh, is nothing but a, uh, almost, you almost, you always hear about the gray matter, but we are a mass of wires and connections. And if you look at an MR scan in cross-section, you see the vast amount of, of fiber connections that we're composed of. And you look at a rat and it's very, very little, very, a very small amount of white matter. So we, it's very important how our connections uh, are made from one place to another. And it turns out that we can now study those, as I mentioned, using this technique called diffusion tensor imaging, where we can actually follow the tracks uh, in the human brain. And uh, what's interesting is you can now look for individual variations, so maybe, Maybe the way your corpus callosum is hooked up from, uh, from one person to another is quite different. And uh, this was first made evident to us by uh, uh, work carried out, carried out in our lab where we, we were calling upon two processes, a process that we knew was present in the right hemisphere that takes an object and rotates it in space and then a left hemisphere project that, uh, process that then names the objects. So if you show a boat to the, uh, the subject and it's upside down, before you could name it, what you do is sort of rotate it in your mind and then you send that rotated image over to the left hemisphere 
and the left hemisphere applies the name and out. Well, what we noticed was that there were fast, people fast at this, people slow at this. And we were able to track out the fast people transferred the information in one part of their brain, one part of their colostrum, and the slow people used a totally different mechanism to get the information over to the speech center. So then that raised the question, well, maybe there's actual anatomical differences that reflect why different routes are taken, why somebody may be a little bit faster or, 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 or slower on a particular task. And so uh, working with uh, Carl Doran in, in, in the lab, we have taken uh, subjects and we've studied uh, uh, how the callosum connections vary to these areas in, in the lateral surface of the, of the uh, cortex. And you basically take the subjects and you find out, these are four subjects, that the amount of, of fibers in the callosum varies tremendously for a particular region from subject to subject to subject. And in this one subject here, uh, a totally different route is taken uh, to get over to the other hemisphere. These are just normal folks being studied, and we can now study it, and we see this individual variation. So the task, when you look at this in the legal concept, is how are you gonna capture all of this variation when you're talking about using brain scans against or for a particular person in a legal setting? So um, the case against scans in the courtroom now is, uh, I think, fairly, uh, firm and uh, reasonable, and I don't think too many people disagree with it. And, the, and, and what are they? Just to summarize them quickly, the mind, emotions, and the way we think constantly change. What is measured in the brain at the time of scanning doesn't reflect what was happening at the time of a crime. So I'm going to bring you in to test you out today, but you committed the crime last week. How do you put that story together? It's not a good idea. All brains are different from each other. That's the point I just made. Brains are sensitive to many factors uh, that can change the scans, caffeine, tobacco, alcohol, fatigue, strategy, you name it. Uh, and performance is not consistent. People do better or worse at the task from day to day. Images of the brain are prejudicial. A picture creates a body. Well, we've already been there. So the, 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 there's a lot of reasons why today, today, now, 2009, while this science is enormously process, uh, promising, there's real firm reasons why it probably will more likely than not be misused uh, in a courtroom uh, instead of being used properly. But what you have to remember is, as soon as I uh, do that, what you have to remember is that's today. And what you know if you are a, a practicing scientist is things change. They, they change fast, they change quickly and things are coming that are gonna change all of that. So what you have to do is get ready for tomorrow. And tomorrow, there's gonna be a, uh, uh, by tomorrow, I, I mean 10 years, 15 years, you can't predict it because somebody will come up with something and there'll be an ex exponential growth in the understanding of how a particular a scientific view can be applied to a larger question. So, uh, so uh, and, and let me just give you a clue about how, and what may be coming. Um, we'll go back first to the foundation of uh, Sir Edward Cook's maxim, uh, that's, which is central, central to American and, and British common law, the actus non facet reus nisi men sit rea, better known as mens rea. Uh, I, I just put it down there for the fun, trying to translate it. Uh, moving 
through not the making defended, if not mind, he is rea. Remember when you used to translate Latin sitting in your desk upstairs and everybody else was watching television and it made no sense to you then? Well, <laughs> you were right. It makes no sense. The act does not make a person guilty unless the mind is guilty. You need a guilty mind in, uh, to, to uh, be guilty of a crime. Everybody knows. And there's four major parts. There's, you have to either demonstrate purposefulness, you have to demonstrate knowledge, you have to demonstrate recklessness, you have to demonstrate negligence. Now, guess what? Each of those issues uh, have brain mechanisms that are well studied and are being better studied and better understood each, uh, each year we go along. So purposefulness, involve, purposefulness involves intentional systems. Knowledge and awareness involves emotional systems. Recklessness and, and lack of it, or, or creation of it, is, involves reward systems. Negligence and the creation of a, of a, a substantial or known risk uh, involves joy seeking. Each of these uh, uh, ways of saying the other are large areas of research in neuroscience for which much is known. And I wanted to just tell you about one, the one that would may at some level seem less likely, but in fact it is true. Uh, if you take, uh, this is recent work by uh, Desmerger, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. If you take uh, uh, normal folks and uh, you stimulate, uh, actually these are normal folks with their, their skulls on, this is a pictorial, rep pictorial representation of it using that stimulating device we talked about earlier. Uh, but here, here's his, his astounding uh, discovery, that if you stimulate in the right parietal area at a low rate, uh, you uh, have the, the, the subject has a sensation that he has a conscious attention. If you stimulate in these areas, and there may be a difference here between the uh, red and yellow, it's in the parietal lobe. Uh, if you stimulate at a, at a higher rate, there's a awareness of action despite the absence of muscle. In other words, the person is sitting there and he, he or she is convinced that they've just carried out an act and they haven't done anything yet. So there's an attention, there's a, the, the belief of a awareness of action, but even more strangely, uh, if you stimulate in the frontal areas, the subject produces a multi-joint movement, but the subject remains unaware of it. So you can, you can break these things apart. You can see particular brain areas that are gonna be involved in particular acts of what you think is a, a willed uh, activity, and as the, uh, as, as the neurologic scanning comes in and says, well, look, at Jones has a lesion here. He's, his ability to form an intent is totally disrupted, uh, or what have you. Anyway, along the, the train of, of, from intention to motor act, there's going to be a story one can tell about whether the person is functioning normally or not. And uh, this work is also intention, uh, attention to intention areas was nicely demonstrated by the young uh, cognitive neuroscientist at Cambridge, now Columbia Lau, and we mentioned this work uh, briefly the other day. So this is what's coming. There's gonna be mental states, mens rea mental states are very important in determining guilt or innocence, and there's gonna be claims coming down the pike which are gonna be tighter than what can be currently stated today uh, on these fronts. And that, I think, will have an enormous influence on how we think about ourselves and how the law will deal with it. 
So another area of, of practical, uh, more practical nature uh, is of interest. Uh, the problem of bias in the courtroom is a big concern. And uh, Supreme Court Justice Arthur Kennedy uh, observed, the law makes a promise, neutrality. If the promise gets broken, the law as we know it ceases to exist. It's obviously true. Uh, and the question is, how much of it's sneaking in unbeknownst to people uh, involved in the judicial process? Are judges being manipulated uh, by things they don't even think are manipulating them? They know when they're being manipulated by the uh, attorneys or trying to be manipulated. What about other more subtle uh, approaches? Uh, so uh, one example of this comes from, uh, if you remember the Duke uh, lacrosse case uh, several years ago where Duke students were, were, uh, were accused of, uh, of uh, sexual uh, activities uh, with uh, a, a couple of women and uh, there was deep problems about it. And what it turns out, uh, it was a problem probably of uh, eyewitness bias that arises out of something that is well known in psychology called uh, own race bias memory. So people uh, of one race are very good at detecting differences in of, uh, facial features of their race. And they're very poor at detecting people of another race. And this does, so black versus white, Asian versus black, black versus uh, uh, Asians, every, every <laughs> God, all of a sudden the races of the world got departed in my head. Uh, uh, so it, it, whatever it is, we are very good in practice uh, at our own. And this has been used in the courts for years uh, at a behavioral level. But along comes, uh, uh, a, a young colleague of, of, of mine, uh, David Turk, who, who now is at Aberdeen, and he demonstrated that this own race bias phenomenon is localized to processes in the right brain. So now that it has a neurologic meat on it, as it were, it becomes a very powerful tool to be used. And I think this is an, another example of uh, how neuroscience will impact the nature of evidence, which will ultimately impact the law. But more interesting on this uh, bias question, uh, work done at, at, at Princeton uh, by Susan Fisk in her, her lab re really is telling. What she did basically was study normal uh, undergraduates uh, on a series of people having a particular emotional state. And uh, it turns out that uh, if you study people that uh, faces that depict, uh, that elicit uh, the emotion in you of pity, there's a certain brain activity pattern. If you study people that are listening uh, pride in you uh, from the way she sets up the experiment, there's another sort of brain activity profile. If you study envy, there's still another uh, network that seems to be activated under that. But then you, you throw up in, in, the, in that story someone that elicits the emotion of disgust, and in particular examples to say a drug addict. Uh, there's a reaction of disgust uh, and the brain activities are totally different. And uh, they're no different than when you look at a rock, or an inanimate object. So what happens is that we have somehow taken this defendant knowing his crime, you look at him, and you're not doing this consciously, but you're having a totally different simulated response to that person. And how can that not uh, powerfully influence you and, and poten potentially uh, change how you're going to evaluate that person 
in, 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 in punishment. So, uh, so that's all. Um, that's all getting the person, the issues that get the person charged. And, and basically, people get charged and are proven guilty. They are the agents of the crime. And, uh, uh, and that's kind of the easy part. It's been pointed out to me by justice after justice. All of the, what really is going on goes on in the sentencing phase of a trial, where you're trying to look at all the factors that may be mitigating the person's act. I mean, Jones did rob the store, did kill the person. We know that. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to, how are we going to treat Jones with relationships to everything we know? And so uh, uh, the Mother Justice uh, uh, brings at this point in uh, all the issues that we know about in ethics and rationality, law, natural law, fairness, religion, uh, and so forth. And again, I say it's at the sentencing uh, and mitigation issues. So if you have a belief that people are personally responsible, then you have an understanding why retribution seems uh, uh, appropriate and uh, punishment as well. If on the other hand, you have this determinism view uh, and what you're really concerned about is accountability is probably all that really matters. You're thinking to yourself and out of that can grow some kind of, of forgiveness. These are, these are tensions that go on, as you'll see, every day up until uh, this week, Scotsman, I'm going to give you a couple of examples locally for the fun of it. But it is obviously a tension that is with us. And it comes early. In fact, apparently we're born with it again. You know, I mean, there people, the developmental psychologists constantly uh, are taking human activities that we think we've learned and honed and developed and sent off to school and learned all the details about. And then they, you know, wiggle a couple of things in front of babies and find out, oh, the baby's already got it. You know, and uh, all we've been doing is adding, you know, ornaments to it and tinsels and, and everything. And so, here, I mean, innate uh, infants and fairness. Uh, th this is the work of a very talented uh, psychologist, uh, Rene Balgeron, and again, uh, working with uh, Dave, uh, uh, David Premack, who we've talked so much about. Uh, so here, here's one experiment that shows that the babies right away have an, uh, young babies. These are you know, a few months old, have a sense of fairness. So if you take uh, a, uh, let's see how I got this working here. If you take uh, little giraffes that are animated, they're puppets as you see there, and a baby is supposed to uh, divide up the good. So if, if a banana uh, goes to this giraffe, uh, the baby is only happy if a banana goes to the other giraffe, okay? They have to, and they do various tricks of how they, they, they measure the baby, but the, the basic idea is that things have to be distributed equally to this animate object. And psychologists are always running controls, so they put up uh, two giraffes that in fact uh, aren't animated. They're just they're plastic, stiff things there. They look inanimate. They don't elicit in the baby this whole sense of, of social response. And, and under that case, the baby uh, could care less uh, how, where you put the bananas. So right off the bat, you, you got a fairness mechanism going uh, uh, in young uh, children. Uh, but now, what about reciprocity? Well, they've tested up down to 18 months, and, uh, and reciprocity is alive and well right from the beginning. 
So uh, I've illustrated, I went a little crazy on this, just bear with me. Uh, uh, on uh, the, the first act is uh, babies are watching this and A steals B's cookie. Okay, that's a little much. Uh, but uh, uh, babies not surprised if B steals it back. They're just not surprised. I'm just trying to completely use everything Microsoft PowerPoint has throughout the course of this lecture. But, but there it is, that, that the babies aren't surprised. A hits B, I mean another way to say it. A hits B, okay. B is not surprised, the baby is not surprised that B wax, wax A. It's surprised that B doesn't do anything about it. Here's a, a, a deeper one. The relationship extends to group. So if A hinders B, all right, hinders B. Now, babies are surprised if C helps A. Right? What are you helping him for? The guy just hit, not only hit A, I hit B, he hit the group. And you're part of the group. What are you going over there and helping A for? So in response to that, babies are totally surprised. <laughs> Retributive from the beginning, again. Uh, a hits B. Babies are not surprised, as I said, if B hits A. Absolutely not surprised. <laughs> so, so there you go. So all these things that are playing out uh, in us, and we feel them all the time, and, and we're having these polls, and we're trying to have big theories about it, it's just, apparently it's, it's, it's how we're, we're built. So um, a colleague, a young fellow, worked, worked with us on this project was a person who uh, was a not a retributivist and was very upset by our legal system and its punishment. And, uh, but he was going to study it uh, scientifically and he decided to go off to uh, uh, the New Mexico uh, uh, prison uh, and uh, to do some studies. And so for the first time in his life, uh, he was actually in a cell with a man who uh, had uh, harmed a child Killed the principal of the school. Just a bad news guy, right? And he was sitting, uh, you know, right there, and he was there, and he was in his orange suit, and this is, and he says, he says, you know, he'd, he'd been a practice pacifist, and he just said he just felt, ugh, just the retributive thought coming up in his uh, head, and. Uh, uh, and it raises the question, so no one seems to argue too much that there is this retributive uh, response. Uh, and the question is, why is it? Why is it tied into us like that? Well, in evolutionary time, when we're having to deal with our social groups and someone acts antisocially, there wasn't a jail down the street to go put the person in, right? So you probably had to carry out a violent act to deal with the matter. And uh, is that emotional response that gets you ready for that, uh, what uh, we are still uh, carrying around with us? I like the way uh, the British philosopher Janet Richards put it. She says, if we understand that there are good evolutionary reasons for our wanting people to suffer when they have done direct or indirect harm to us, 
then we can account for our strong feelings about the appropriateness of retribution without presuming they are a guide to moral truth. We may be able to recognize our retributive feeling as a deep and important aspect of our character and take them seriously to that extent without endorsing them as a guide to truth and start rethinking our attitudes towards uh, punishment on that basis. Can we do that? Can we just say, okay, we are retributive. We have that in us. Can, can we get behind? Is, would it be good? Does the system work uh, without retribution and so forth? And um, the, 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 the power of this determinism idea is caught in, in the law's excuses, of course, because uh, to blame a person, as uh, Sanford Kaddish put it, to blame a person is to express moral criticism. We're blaming you for doing that act. And if the person's action does not deserve criticism, blaming him is a kind of falsehood and is the extent the person is injured by being blamed unjust to him. So, you, you know, how are we gonna think about this issue? It, it, I think it's what's brewing now in, in, in the world culture who thinks about these matters. And where it's going to land, I, I don't know. Because um, if you read the Scotsman, which I have been for the last two weeks, uh, you will see that all of this is playing out every day in all of our lives. I don't know if you caught this little item in the Scotsman the other day. Top city banker who strangled his unfaithful wife after she asked for a divorce was jailed for eight years yesterday. Kate Ellerbeck, 46, died when, after a violent struggle with her husband at their 600,000-pound home in Enfield, North London, in November last year. Neil Enberg, 46, was found guilty of manslaughter on grounds of lack of intent by an old Bailey jury, which cleared him of murder. The judge said, your frustration erupted that morning when it became clear that your wife was serious about divorce and it was then that you applied sustained and deliberate pressure to her neck. Wow, that is forgiveness is seeping in to that story there. There is a something going on because uh, I can't imagine that going on in an American court right now. Uh, but nonetheless, you get the idea. There, there's, an, uh, there's, there's something, there's something there, they're, 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 they're letting this guy off, and they've decided in some way that, uh, that there's other mechanisms involved that should allow for that forgiveness. And here's the opposite uh, outcry after man to serve only 10 years for stabbing dad of three. This was in paper the other day, Scotsman. Uh, maybe you're familiar with this. Uh, fury erupted yesterday when a man was jailed for life for the knife murder of a member of his extended family. Philip Graham was ordered to serve at least 10 years before he could apply for parole. Pauline Graham, his cousin and the partner of the victim, Mark Johnson, shouted that Graham had given a life sentence to her and her children. The court was furious when the judge only did this uh, 10 years thing. Uh, Graham of West Pilton Terrace, Edinburgh, admitted murdering Mr. Johnson, a father of three, outside his home in Haddington on 14th of June. Earlier that night, following a family engagement party, Mr. Johnson became involved in an argument with Graham's brother, whom he punched. Retribution was sought, and Graham attacked Mr. Johnson on his street near the home. The defense counsel, Mark Stewart, said Graham had been brought up in an environment where violence was used to settle disputes. He was not involved in the original incident and not interested in becoming involved until others encouraged him, said Mr. Stewart. Well, there's a list of retribution dripping off, off that story. And so 
Uh, all of these, uh, what I want to convey is that all of these issues that, uh, that are coming and being generated by, as we come to a more uh, physicalist uh, understanding of who we are, are going to influence how we think about these issues. Right now, everybody's divided. Every, there's, there's, there's sides, issues on both sides, uh, as you know. And I'm going to, uh, 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 this obviously raises the question, well, can we think about forgiveness and compassion and retribution? And I did have a uh, film clip here of uh, the one uh, your culture had just been through with the Lockerbie bombing to give the contrast, but I'm going to spare you that <laughs> right now. And get to the question of, of, is forgiveness a viable concept? Is it forgiveness a viable concept? Uh, uh, you take the Sermon on the Mount, you take the teachings of Buddha, you take that all together. Is that possible to run a culture, a society where forgiveness uh, trumps accountability and punishment? Does the system work? Uh, people who study computer networks say, if you take accountability out of the network, the whole thing falls apart. Well, no one's saying we take accountability out, but what do you need the punishment uh, component. You have to have that in there. I think it remains uh, an open question. It's clearly our genome thinks it's important, but can we, can we rise above it or not? I think it all depends on how we come uh, to think about ourselves. So uh, what will it be? Uh, are we going to uh, go the forgiveness route or are we going to lock them up? Uh, retribution, uh, is it needed for accountability? Is that going to just turn out to be a fact of our lives? And, uh, and then if we do decide that we have to uh, put people away, and we do, or put them in jail, put them in a hospital, put it, whatever it is, uh, how do we determine what is an appropriate punishment for a particular act? Uh, those, those are very tough questions and questions that remain uh, to be studied. So um, I want to leave you with uh, the if I was pulling all together a couple slides where we've been in the last uh, six lectures, uh, uh, I want to leave you with this, this picture and a, and a visual metaphor about it. Uh, of course, we've been talking about how uh, there are all these emergent properties as you go from basic particles up to the mental, up to the social, how those two interact. And uh, <laughs> this thing is just way too slow. Uh, and, and, and how that then constrains us and feeds back down uh, into, into, into constraining our own actual uh, physiology and behavior. And the, the notion is that this is a dynamic uh, event going on throughout the whole uh, milieu of our, of our existence. And if I was to, to try to put this into a visual metaphor, uh, wait a minute, excuse me, this, <laughs> I went overboard there. Um, if I put it in a visual metaphor, how about this? Here, here, here we are in this world of physical forces. We all know about the, with their consequences for us, their control on our behaviors, and we try to strike out even though we remain a, a social. Uh, 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 the social forces are with us, the physical forces are with us, and we, we try to strike out to maintain our independence from all of that as depicted here.
just thinks he's getting away. So, so the way Einstein would have put that uh, situation of, and, and the view from determinism is, uh, as he did say, if the moon in the act of completing its eternal way around the earth were gifted in self-consciousness, it would feel thoroughly convinced that it was traveling its way of its own accord. So would a being endowed with higher insight and more perfect intelligence, watching man and his doings smile about man's illusion that he was acting according to his own free will. Now, okay, that's fine. I mean, that may be a version of saying the interpreter. I, in the end, I, I uh, have a different view. Uh, I have the view that uh, that uh, determinism has uh, really no meaning in the context of human responsibility and choice, that human nature remains constant while behavior can change <clears throat> no matter what the conditions. Humans can follow rules or not, and it is that fact that makes us responsible agents and, yes, free. That's an important and essential fact that I think uh, ultimately is uh, life-affirming and, uh, and exhilarating. Now, uh, <clears throat> Reminded of this cartoon it was sent to me by my graduate student when I told him I was going to make these lectures, told him what I was going to say. This cartoon says, if it made sense, that would be a very powerful idea. <laughs> graduate students have to keep you honest. Well, maybe a more sober way to put it was William James' way. Our faith is faith in someone else's faith, and in the greatest matters, this is most the case. So through these a series of lectures, I've tried to weave a story and tell and pull together a variety of uh, facts and information. Uh, but in the end, it is an exercise that, of course, everybody in this room uh, should do for themselves, is interested in it. That's why you're here. And uh, as Don McKay used to say, uh, uh, rethink it, rethink it, and see if you wind up in the same place you did uh, on January as you did the previous uh, January. So I want to uh, take this uh, moment to uh, thank you. Um, uh, it's been a wonderful uh, experience. And I want to also thank the uh, various people here, and I will in a second, uh, who have been such a part of uh, all this research over the years. I'm playing a, a piece of music, my favorite piece of music, it turns out. Uh, but it, it, some people say it sounds like a funeral. It, that's not what I mean. It does signal, however, uh, the end of this uh, terrific experience.
we've had um, a series of lectures that have been uh, obviously uh, colorfully and carefully prepared with a, a, a exemplary use of audiovisual materials for those of us who are, uh, uh, I confess, uh, uh, self-confessed dinosaurs in some of the technology, uh, stimulating, uh, thought-provoking, indeed sometimes provocative uh, kinds of uh, uh, claims and issues being put forth, and obviously from the consistency with which uh, you have filled the auditorium, you have succeeded in both um, eliciting and maintaining an interest in a considerable number of people. So will you join me in once again expressing our appreciation to Professor, Professor Gazanaga for these lectures. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.